2: Healthcare is not colourblind. The COVID 19 pandemic has exposed just how much the colour of a person's skin can stack the odds when it comes to their physical health. Those stark disparities in healthcare go beyond COVID 19. What can scientists and policymakers do about them? Hello and welcome to Babbage from The Economist, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Alok Char, science correspondent at The Economist. In today's show, we'll explore what's driving racial differences in
3: health outcomes. It's not as if we don't have research. What's lacking is the ability to translate this research and knowledge into practice.
2: We'll look at aspects of physical health from the tangible and downright obvious...
1: Inflammation is described as redness or pink coloration of the skin. And in dark skin, inflammation appears much differently.
2: To those that are imperceptible to the eye.
1: The fact that
4: pain is a invisible condition, that really does, I think, leave open more potential for bias. And
2: we'll ask whether the rise of medical technology, guided by artificial intelligence will compound existing bias, or could it hold a
0: cure? It's very important to know who's going to get sick, and this is something that algorithms are very
2: good at doing. With me as we investigate all of this is Tamara jilks She's The Economist, US policy correspondent, and has been reporting on many of the factors behind people's health outcomes. Tamara, thank you so much for joining us here on Babbage. How are you?
5: I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk about this super important
2: topic. You're very welcome to be here. Well, doctors and policymakers and patients have been quite keenly aware for decades that race and ethnicity are somehow tied in with health outcomes. Why is now a good time to be talking about all of this stuff?
5: So we've known for a very long time that there were racial disparities in health outcomes. It goes all the way back to 1899 when W.E.B. Du Bois published The Philadelphia Negro and showed that there were differences in health outcomes between Black and white people, and that these differences had to do more with living conditions than genetics. But recently, we've been seeing more of a push to understand racial disparities in medicine. For example, a study in the UK in January 2021 found that maternal death rates were almost twice as high for Asian women and almost four times higher for Black women when compared to white women. But the pandemic has really made these disparities even clearer. The latest data from the CDC finds that in America, Black, Hispanic, and Indigenous people are around three times as likely to be hospitalized from COVID and at least twice as likely to die from COVID-19 as white people. And this is not just a problem in America. We don't have data from every country, but state-level data from Sao Paulo in Brazil found similar disparities between Black and white people when it came to COVID. Sweden also tallied deaths early in its epidemic and found that those born abroad were several times more likely to die than those born in Sweden. So to put all of this into perspective, I spoke with Dr. Lisa Angeline Cooper. She's a professor of health and healthcare at Johns Hopkins University and she was recently appointed to President Biden's Council of Scientific Advisors. She's been researching this issue for almost two decades, and I thought it would be a good idea to ask her how the pandemic has changed her understanding of the problem.
3: Communities of color were hit particularly hard by COVID-19 because these communities are already disadvantaged um, socially. They've been marginalized and experienced discrimination For many, many centuries. Their neighborhoods have suffered from lack of investment in terms of the quality of housing and schools and uh, things such as access to transportation. And they tend to work in jobs that uh, pay less than people who live in other communities. And so we know that people in those communities have experienced health disparities for a long time. These health disparities are due to things like cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, cancer. They're going to be most likely to be exposed either through their work or just by going about their daily activities. At a minimum, even if we didn't address health disparities before the pandemic, what we could have done was to be aware very early on that a pandemic of this sort would be most likely to disproportionately affect those people. And we would have gone out of our way to make sure that they had resources early on.
5: Right. So one positive impact of the pandemic is greater awareness. Are we seeing any other positive impacts in terms of maybe greater data, better research, anything else?
3: So what I would say is that we began to see better data broken down by race and ethnicity over time after there were so many calls uh, from national and local leaders for this information. And so I think we've made some progress in that arena, even though I think we still have a long way to go. A lot of it has to do with the fact that we simply don't collect this information in a standardized manner and that many of our data systems don't actually coordinate and uh, speak with each other. Believe it or not, we have a large amount of research and evidence about this problem and about potential solutions to it. So it's not as if we don't have research. What's lacking is the ability to translate this research and knowledge into practice. And you know what that actually requires is changes in policies that will allow people to implement things that we know work. So for example, having ways to pay for different kinds of services for people in in different healthcare settings, having enough funding or laws that will require people to be covered by insurance or to have paid leave or to have childcare or to have fair housing.
5: In terms of long-term trends, how are things changing when it comes to racial disparities in medicine? Are things improving? Are they getting worse?
3: Overall, I would say life expectancy, health status has improved in the United States and in many developed countries around the world. We're seeing disparities within those countries between those who are the most advantaged or wealthy or who have the most power socially And the progress that's being made in those groups is much faster than the progress that's being made in people who have lower income and people of color. And so as a result, we're not seeing that much improvement in the disparity gap. And until lower income countries have access to COVID vaccines, until we can understand that we are all interconnected within our communities locally, as well as globally, our health is inextricably linked. And so until we address that, the fact that we all need to be protected, we're all going to be at risk. So Tamara, um, to start solving all of this
2: stuff, you need a proper understanding of what causes things. And Dr. Cooper touched on a few of the factors causing these problems in the conversation you had with her. But could you just break down for listeners what you see as some some of the factors that sort of start to contribute to these disparities we see in health outcomes?
5: Whenever I am researching or writing about racial disparities, I tend to think of three main buckets. The first is unequal access, the second is unequal knowledge, and the third is unequal treatment. And what we're seeing here is that racial minorities have less access to healthcare, especially in countries like America without universal healthcare, but even in other countries that do have all-encompassing health systems. Another problem that often happens when we're talking about racial disparities in health is that research tends to center on one type of person, often white males, and that reduces our ability to understand what is happening to other populations. And the third bucket is unequal treatment. And this is, for many reasons, an inability of medical professionals to be able to properly treat people who deviate from that quote-unquote norm, typically white
2: males. And of course, all of those things you talked about, all those three buckets, they, they kind of feed into each other. They're not independent. So they're always going to be a bit difficult to disentangle from each other. The, the problems of unequal outcomes by race and, and ethnicity its so broad and affects all sorts of physical and mental health. We've been talking about COVID so far Um, But for this programme, I think it's worth trying to understand a bit better how these factors play out in in reality beyond the sort of emergency context of the pandemic that we're sort of sitting in right now. I think it's worth taking a few clear-cut examples. And an obvious one, or at least the most visible, is perhaps looking at the health of the skin. Uh, Dermatology, Tamara, tell us about what you've been finding out on that.
5: The most obvious characteristic that identifies someone of a different race is their skin. And this is often a place where medicine has a shortcoming. In order to understand more about this problem, I spoke to Dr. Jenna Lester, a professor of dermatology at the University of California, San Francisco, where she is the founding director of its Skin of Color program.
1: Doctors training to become dermatologists do a lot of review of photographs in order to learn care of the skin. And manifestations of diseases are primarily represented in white skin in the main teaching textbooks that we use in dermatology.
5: Can you help our listeners understand why it might be so important to show different skin colors when you are learning about skin conditions as a medical professional?
1: Sure. Um, I think one concrete example is how inflammation appears in dark skin. So inflammation, or as we call it in dermatology, erythema, is described as redness or pink coloration of the skin that suggests there's some sort of inflammatory process going on there. And in dark skin, inflammation appears much differently. So if you are looking, for example, at psoriasis, which is classically described in textbooks as salmon pink plaques with silvery scale. And you're trying to find this in someone with dark brown skin. You may miss it completely because that color of salmon pink does not appear that way in dark skin. It can be dark brown or it might be purple. And the scale may be present or may not be. So you may not have some of the other sort of indicators that that might be going on. And how
5: much do you think the United States differs from other countries when it comes to understanding skin of color?
1: Well, there are certainly other countries, you know, on the continent of Africa where all the patients they see are patients with brown skin, dark brown skin, India as well, where we can learn a lot from our colleagues there about how to diagnose and treat certain skin diseases. Of course, prevalence of diseases are different in different countries, depending on the location. You know, the the incidence of tropical diseases and and other things may differ. But I think there's a lot we can learn from our colleagues abroad. As a whole, our literature in medicine overrepresents publications and studies from the United States and even parts of Europe, so that we don't actually have. As many opportunities to learn from these colleagues abroad as would be um, ideal to really gain knowledge from their experiences.
5: Do you think it's important that if a patient of color goes to a skin of color clinic, that they are also seen by a professional of color? Or do you think it's more about the training of every professional?
1: I think that's an important question, and there is research that suggests that race concordant visits across medicine are longer. Patients report more satisfaction. I think that it is a bit sad that that needs to be the case, that someone needs to see someone of the same race in order to get the best care possible as they see it and also as outcomes show. I will tell you anecdotally that almost all of the patients that I see in the Skin of Color Clinic, while there's a selection bias there, say that they actively seek a person of color to give them care. However, in this study from Northwestern, they found that in the skin of color clinic setting, it didn't matter who the person seeing them was, whether it was a race concordant visit or not.
5: Right, that makes a lot of sense. I know personally, I um, prefer to see dermatologists who are people of color, but that was only after a couple of negative experiences with with professionals who clearly did not know how how things worked on my skin tone. So perhaps if I had had... More experiences with white professionals, white doctors who knew about my skin conditions, then maybe I would not have gotten searched specifically for people of color.
1: Exactly. And you you are not alone in that. I think the problem is that the most recent numbers that I've seen from the NIH from 2017 or 2018 is that there are 422 black dermatologists in the whole country. And I think there are you know, not that many more Latinx dermatologists, very few, I think, in single digits maybe, of indigenous dermatologists, the percentages are all below 5%. So that's where the education comes in and teaching residents who are training to become dermatologists how to care for all people because this really is general dermatology. It's really not acceptable to feel uncomfortable with an entire group of people just based on their race.
2: So Tamara, it was really interesting to hear Dr. Lester talk there about the importance of something as simple as the inclusion of just good photographs to help doctors make diagnoses more effectively. How much do you think the differing health outcomes are down to shortcomings in things like actual education of doctors and nurses?
5: Students of medicine only know what they're given. An analysis of textbooks in 2020 by Dr. Jules Lipoff at the University of Pennsylvania showed that the percentage of images of dark skin ranged from 4% to 18% meaning that the vast majority of images shown in medical textbooks were of white skin so of course doctors are more comfortable diagnosing things on white skin if that's what they've been taught
2: education is obviously uh, what one part of it but medical devices themselves are trained and calibrated on particular subsets of the population, right? I mean, you wrote a really interesting piece for the science section a few months ago on pulse oximeters.
5: The pulse oximeter works by passing light through the finger. And as a result for black patients, the light reflected differently than on white patients. A study out of the University of Michigan found that a darker skinned person could actually be in real distress. They could have low oxygen levels But the supposedly objective device was reading their oxygen levels as perfectly fine. And when we're talking about COVID, when hospitals were at peak capacity, this could be the difference between being admitted to the hospital or being asked to self-monitor at home.
2: Now, skin colour obviously has an impact on health outcomes, as we've seen. But it's also worth investigating how race and racial group has some correlations with less visible aspects of physical health. Intangible conditions that are perhaps hardest to diagnose objectively?
4: The fact that pain is an invisible condition, we rely primarily on self-report, almost exclusively on, on self-report. So that really does, I think, leave open the possibility for more um, judgment um, among healthcare providers and thus more potential for bias in, in healthcare to occur.
2: Mary Janovich is a researcher at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. Her research focuses on disparities and chronic pain, primarily among older adults from marginalised populations.
4: There have been persistent inequities in pain care by racialized groups. Many studies have shown African-Americans in particular to be treated less aggressively for pain across the care spectrum. Using a nationally representative data set of Americans over age 50, we found, interestingly, that household wealth was strongly associated with the prevalence of long-term disabling pain. Household wealth is a pretty good indicator of current socioeconomic status, but also lifetime socioeconomic status. So it can be thought of, to some extent, as a proxy for the resources that you've had across your lifespan, including health care. There are massive inequalities in wealth, according to racialized group in the United States, such that African-Americans have just a tiny fraction of the wealth of of white Americans.
2: Given that pain is kind of difficult to measure, are there techniques or strategies that um, clinicians could be using to measure pain and catalog it in a more objective way?
4: One of the things that is being done currently is what's called ecological momentary assessment for pain. So rather than relying on kind of retrospective looks at reports of pain, people are able to log their pain in real time, um, which can give kind of a more accurate picture of how a person is perceiving pain. But yet that's still subjective self-report. I think there's work being done on looking at some biomarkers or some kind of characteristic Behavioral or physiological patterns that would indicate pain or pain related disability. But I think those types of technologies are still not being widely used. They're still kind of under development. So I think there's quite a long way to go to get an objective measure of pain. And then it also kind of raises complex questions about, I mean, what, what is pain really? I mean, we, the International Association for the Study of Pain, includes suffering in the very definition of pain. So it's a, it's a sensation and it's an emotion. Um, and so given that pain is such a subjective experience, you know, it kind of raises the question, like, what does an objective measure of this subjective experience even mean? Is it more accurate?
1: What
2: what does the research tell you about the differences in pain experienced between black and white patients? Is, is there any difference? And, and And if so, where might those differences come from?
4: I think there are still some lingering stereotypes. Centuries ago, during the enslavement period in, in the United States, it was believed that African Americans actually felt less pain than white Americans. Um, obviously, long since completely debunked, but there's some kind of lingering misperceptions about that. There's a study that came out four or five years ago where some medical students still seem to harbor the the belief that African Americans were less sensitive to pain. But I think what's important to think about is why we do see these racialized disparities in, in pain, meaning that factors, you know, biological factors, psychological factors, social factors can affect the pain experience as well as be affected by
2: it. How do you make sure that medicine, and particularly pain medicine and management, becomes race-conscious and and leaves behind racism?
4: In our own work, um, we just recently launched a large um, trial funded by NIH. It's a chronic pain self-management intervention that not only teaches strategies for managing pain in daily life, but also includes explicit attention to social determinants of health. We're looking at whether this intervention can be effective in improving pain-related function among older adults in Detroit, which is a predominantly African-American, economically um, deprived community. So if you have someone like a community health worker teaching an older adult pain management skills, who can also let them know how they can get help with caregiving or get the front steps of their house repaired or their leaky roof, or help them find a way to get a hearing device so they can become more socially active again help them figure out how to get transportation to join a walking group, will this also lessen their pain? And our hypothesis is that it can.
2: Speaking to Dr. Janovic, there, what struck me was how much she was trying to describe pain as something more than just a physical experience. She was saying it was related to social, psychological issues. And she questions whether it's even possible to... Uh, objectively diagnose pain. Tamara, what did you make of all that?
5: Yeah, I thought that was really interesting too. We know that stress can exacerbate pain and we know that experiencing racism is very stressful. So what does that mean? And what does that mean to be objective? Do we remove racism from the equation and act as if those patients aren't experiencing that? Or do we included. It's so complex and really fascinating. And I think that this is an opportunity for technology, specifically AI, to really play a role in addressing bias.
2: Yes. And we'll be finding out much more about the promise and perils of that technology in just a moment. But first, don't forget, if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, there's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. This week, our climate and environment correspondents are in Glasgow, bringing you their hot takes on COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference. It's a crucial summit to try and limit the impacts of global warming. If you want to keep up with their analysis over the course of the conference and beyond, subscribe at economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the notes for this episode. Healthcare is undergoing a technological revolution. There's huge optimism about how better devices, data collection and machine learning can all help to improve the lives and health outcomes of patients. In an ideal world, technology could help doctors make better decisions and ensure a fairer, more inclusive healthcare system. But no new technology is without its pitfalls. A lot of my work focuses on how to use artificial
0: intelligence to improve how doctors make decisions, how others in the healthcare system make decisions. And so I came to the work on bias from a place of great optimism about the future of algorithms and artificial intelligence in medicine. But along the way,
2: I became aware that these algorithms can also do great harm. When Dr. Ziad Obermeyer is not occupied as an emergency room doctor, He's also a professor of health policy at the University of California, Berkeley, and an expert in medical machine learning. When we think about algorithms in healthcare, we often
0: think about algorithms that are used by a doctor in the clinic. And those are not being very commonly used now, but where they're very widespread is on the back end of the healthcare system where policy planners and administrators need to make decisions at scale for who gets access to what. In one of our papers, we studied an algorithm that was being made by one particular company and sold to hospitals in the United States. That specific algorithm was being used to make decisions for 70 million people every year. If you look at the family of algorithms that are similar to that algorithm, um, the scale of that is about 150 to 200 million people. Every Every year, and so it's effectively the majority of the U.S. population that's being screened through one of these algorithms every year for a very important decision about who gets access to help with their health.
2: How big a problem is bias in medical AI, Um, and can you give me some examples of uh, of how racial bias manifests itself?
0: One of the surprising things that we learned was that even though we think about the bias as stemming from the data, and, and that's largely true, the bias actually also stems from the choices that we make when we build those algorithms and how we train the algorithms and what we tell the algorithms to do. In a paper that we published two years ago in Science, we studied an algorithm that was being used by healthcare systems to make decisions for populations of patients about who was going to get access to extra help for managing chronic conditions. So it's very important to know who's going to get sick, and this is something that algorithms are very good at doing. They're very good at looking into the future and predicting, for example, what product you're going to buy or what you're going to think of a movie or a TV series. Right, so how do you actually predict which people will get sick? There's no variable in your data set that says going to get sick. So you need to pick a variable for the algorithm to predict. And a very common choice that people made when building those algorithms is to predict how much someone was going to cost as a proxy for how much healthcare they were going to need. Now, that's not an unreasonable choice because in general, people who get sick do cost money. The problem is that not everybody who needs healthcare Gets healthcare. And that's true in the US, in the insured population that we were studying, but it's also true in the UK and and in Europe and pretty much everywhere. So these algorithms were very accurately predicting, for example, that black patients in the US were going to cost less than white patients, even though those two patients might have the exact same healthcare needs. And as a result, it was letting healthier white patients cut in line ahead of sicker black patients for access to help with their healthcare.
2: How do you compare the bias that an AI has to human bias? In the particular setting that this
0: algorithm was used, where we studied it, the algorithm's predictions weren't implemented directly. They were first actually shown to doctors, and doctors were given an opportunity to overrule the algorithm and potentially to undo the bias built into that algorithm. And what we found in the paper was that doctors did approximately nothing to undo the bias. They just accepted the algorithm. Because if you put yourself in the doctor's position, on the one hand, I think that's a statement about the fact that doctors are busy and they need help. But I think it's also really an opportunity that if we build algorithms the right way, algorithms that aren't biased, they actually have
2: the opportunity to help a lot. It's quite a potentially confusing picture, isn't it? Because obviously both humans and algorithms have their flaws, but you kind of want both of them in the picture, working together, understanding each other's flaws to make sure that the decision for the patient is the best one possible.
0: Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. And I think that one Optimistic ending to this story is that before we published, we actually got in touch with the company that made that biased algorithm, and so in collaboration with them, we actually retrained that algorithm to predict patients' health needs rather than their health costs.
2: You you did a study recently on pain, which you know is obviously very hard for doctors to objectively diagnose. I mean, how can just tell us a bit about that and how it can be how algorithms actually can be the savior against bias in this case.
0: This was work that was led by my colleague, Emma Pearson, who's now at Cornell University. And the question we were interested in tackling was a longstanding mystery in medicine, which is that Black patients and also uh, lower education, lower income patients actually report much more pain. Even when a radiologist looks at an X-ray and takes two patients, one Black and one white, for example, whose X-rays look the same to the radiologist... The black patient still reports more pain, even when their knees look the same to the radiologist. We just asked the algorithm to, given an x ray, predict whether this knee was going to be painful to the patient or not. And what we found was that the algorithms were able to explain an enormous fraction of that gap in pain between black and white patients. If you go back and and look at the original studies and how we have learned about arthritis in in the knees. The initial studies were done on coal miners in Lancashire in in the 1940s and 50s, and that was not a very diverse population. So it's very possible that our medical knowledge contained this bias from being built up from a very specific population in a specific time at a specific place. The idea of getting diverse data sets isn't a statement about, oh, well, we need affirmative action, we need equity for data alone. It's also just about A fundamental principle of science, which is generalizability and and finding universal truths, not local truths.
2: Tamara, what did you make of that example? How optimistic are you about AI in a bid to redress human biases?
5: I found Dr. Obermeyer's example about the need to be really interesting, really compelling. It shows what happens when we center one type of human experience, in this case, the white male coal miners, and it shows that we get an incomplete understanding of pain for everyone when we do that. It also shows what exciting progress can be made when we combine technology with methods that purposely center the experiences of people of color. And this is a really exciting time for technology in medicine. And to take us back right now to the field of dermatology, Google recently announced in May that it plans to launch an app called Dermasys. And it's going to help diagnose common skin conditions by comparing pictures taken on a phone against a database of sorts. Dr. Jenna Lester is part of the team working to develop that with Google. So I asked her if she has concerns about how objective and inclusive this type of tool can be.
1: I think in dermatology, the most obvious problem is that because we know there's a bias in photos that exist, at least that are published widely, the thought is that we're programming the same bias into ML that potentially is supposed to be improving care. So we would like machine learning algorithm to augment in a positive way decisions that are being made. I think in dermatology specifically, what accurate data collection would look like. For example, if you're thinking of a data point as a photograph, photographs need to be taken in a certain way. They need to have appropriate lighting. There's like a lot of things with labeling of data, et cetera. In addition to having accurate data, you need to have explicit permission from the patient to use their data in the way you're intending to. So I think we're entering this new wave where we're using data in a way that the patient may not know and it may exist in perpetuity. So they need to be part of that conversation when we're deciding what data we're using and what data we're not.
2: Tamara, that's really interesting to hear that project uh, being described there. Listening to Dr Lester's concerns about privacy though, it's clear that some countries are really quite cautious about gathering granular data on race and ethnicity uh, and linking it to the health of citizens. In France, it's actually banned to do that sort of stuff um, because there are concerns that could do, be used to further discrimination um, rather than counter it. And you can kind of understand that. But you know, unless you collect that data, unless you know what's going on, how can you start to fix problems? But then comes the harder bit, putting that data to use. In summary, given what we've learned today, give us your tips for what good health policy looks like when we when we know how, well, what's going wrong.
5: Good health policy means prioritizing access for disadvantaged people. That might not be easy, but it has to be prioritized. Next, it means having better data and research, much like what you just mentioned, Alec, but also not just collecting it and ensuring privacy, but collecting enough data to be able to properly disaggregate by race, gender, race and gender, whatever different subgroups are necessary for the appropriate subgroup analyses. We have to prioritize that or else we lose important insights. And then finally, we have to make sure that we are centering the experiences of different types of people. Too often medicine focuses on one group, often white males, And that means that anyone who deviates from that norm, whether they are white men who have different presentations or different experiences, whether they are women, people of color, they don't get medical system that treats them properly and treats them as fairly. And I think what's been really clear overall in all of this is that medicine gets better for everyone when we challenge ourselves to understand a diversity of experiences.
2: And I think that as you said right at the beginning of the show as well that the the covid-19 pandemic has really shone a spotlight on this and there's there's a real opportunity to to act here as awful as this pandemic has been if this can be a way that medicine sort of moves forward to try and understand how these disparities happen and to make sure that that those disparities are understood and reduced in future, that that's going to be one very small silver lining. But Tamara, I think for now, let's leave it there. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And thanks also to Dr. Lisa Angeline Cooper, Dr. Jenna Lester, Dr. Mary Janovich, and Dr. Ziad Obermeyer. And thank you for listening to Babbage. While you're with us, please take a moment to leave us a rating or, better yet, a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also write to us directly at podcasts at economist.com. We'd love to hear from you. The producers were Abisoya Osundairo and Amika Sortino-Nolan. Nico Rofast is our sound engineer and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Alok Jha, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.